The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, it's Gabby from What's Gabby Cooking, and seeing as how we've all got a little extra time on our hands at home, um, hello social distancing, let's get down to business in the kitchen. Come hang every Monday while we talk about all things food and I answer your burning questions about cooking, ingredients, swaps, tips and tricks, etc. I'm also going to be highlighting super rad small businesses and we're going to be learning about other incredible makers in the food world and who even knows what else. Anything's fair game in 2020, right? What's Gabby Cooking in the Wild? Here we come. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. How to Raise More Resilient Children. This is a topic I research and teach myself. And as a parent, I'm always looking to have more conversations about this with other experts in the field. This conversation was so important for me to have on Looking Up because, well, it isn't just us that have been going through the major struggles, losses, and setbacks this last year and a half, but our children have as well. Throughout the pandemic, I have heard over and over that we need not worry about our kids. They are resilient. I believe this to be true. Our kids have a vast capacity for resiliency. But to just discount their experience and struggles over this past year and a half and chalk it all up to, well, they won't remember. They bounce back so fast. They are the resilient ones. To not check in, not help them construct tools and provide a space for them to share what's going on in their insides is not okay with me. Yes, like I said, our kids have the capacity for resiliency, but it's up to us to help them build and exercise that muscle. On today's episode of Looking Up, I'm talking to Dr. Becky Kennedy. She's a clinical psychologist and a mom of three. She specializes in parenting and child development. She maintains a private practice in New York City and runs parenting groups and workshops. She shares with us that she's a reformed people pleaser and sets boundaries for herself now as a person and a parent. We talk all about parenting and how it's related to trust, control, secrets, understanding, the sometimes struggle with eating and food, taking risks, frustrations, strategies, a new framework, and the ultimate goal of parenting being understanding our children. Really getting to a place of me and my child against a problem rather than me against my child and the problem. I got to bring her some of my very own examples of parenting wins and, well, parenting lows and get her thoughts. If you have kids or plan on having kids in the future, I totally recommend taking out a sheet of paper and a pen and listening to this one multiple times. So how we begin this uh, Looking Up podcast is with a little intro section that I like to call Looking In, and it's just a series of some very, very brief rapid fire style questions uh, in which we, uh, myself and whoever's listening, get to know you a little bit more intimately. So without too much thought or judgment, the first thing that comes to mind. So Dr. Becky, is there a book that you have read Anytime that has actually changed the way in which you live your life. And if so, please share with us what that book is and why. Yeah, feels big, live my life. But could I name two? Yeah. I would say uh, Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock. 
and Internal Family Systems by Richard Schwartz. Okay, great. And three words to describe yourself as a teenager during the high school years. Um, driven, curious, loyal. Okay. Last time you cried? Mm, two or three nights ago when I was feeling very overwhelmed by everything in my kind of to-do list and at the exact moment I wanted to fall asleep. I can very much relate to that. <laughs> um, okay. Three things that have actually brought you joy today. My cup of coffee, um, my yoga, and a supportive text from my husband. And lastly, people think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. People think um, organized and linear, but I'm actually kind of creative and a little bit all over the place. <laughs> Again, something I can relate to. Um, so I would say that um, I would say that I I am probably all those things, but I think people would think I'm the first set and not not as much the second. <laughs> so that really brings me to, I'm so excited to chat with you today for so many reasons, but partly because I think we have so much synergy and in common with with the way we work and the stuff we talk about and the stuff we research. And I know resiliency is something that is really big to you as well as it is to me and how to raise more resilient children, which is really the focus of this episode. But also I am a parent and I have two small boys. I have one uh, boy who is going to be four in a couple months and then I have a six-month-old. So so much of what's happening with everyone right now are, are things that are like personal questions that I just have as well. And I think that so on so many different levels, I'm so excited to welcome you onto the show. And I kind of just want to start very, very briefly uh, and more sort of macro, like just in case some of the listeners don't know exactly the work that you do and who you are, please give us a little intro of what you do and what you're passionate about and what you sort of are hoping to do. Okay, thank you. So I'm Dr. Becky Kennedy. I am a clinical psychologist. And I, I guess I should say I specialize in parenting, but it's probably that resistance to label as any one thing that I'm, I'm coming up against. I think more than anything, I'm just deeply, deeply curious about why people do the things they do, how they became the way they became. And maybe in like the largest way, I'm really curious about the ways we all had to adapt early on to really serve us uh, in ways that were really crafty and then stop working for us when we're older. I'm really interested in intergenerational patterns and change and trauma. I'm a big believer in uh, our body as kind of our best source of knowledge and at the end of the day, dictating more of what we do than, than our brain and our logic systems, or at least our body comes first. And all of that leads me to be really passionate about parenting because I think that's how kind of the world ends up changing or one of the ways. And I'm interested in helping parents, I guess, become the parents they want to be, starting with rewiring things inside them that don't feel good, that were put in place for good reason, but actually uh, start getting in their way. And the way in which that actually enables them to do things differently and kind of be a pivot point intergenerationally. Can you give us an example of that? Maybe with a client that you worked with or even, I don't know, with your... Wait, first of all, you're a parent, right? 
Yeah, sorry. That's like a huge part of my identity <laughs> too. Okay. And something that shapes so much. Yes, I am a parent. I have three kids. So I have a nine and a half year old, a six and a half year old and a three and a half year old boy, girl, boy. So they've taught me so much about what different kids need, what different kids pull from from us, what we're triggered about. Really, I think I live in my own house how my three kids do not have the same parent because they pull for such different things. And me and my husband and kind of watching that live out and watching what each of them need uh, has taught me so much about kind of the uniqueness of, of different children. Were you more passionate about sort of parenting because you became a parent or is this something that uh, you were already doing? Great question. So I would say I really come from, I really come to all of my parenting work from the work I do as a kind of therapist to adults. So I actually don't see young kids anymore in my private practice. I haven't for a really long time. But in some ways, the thing that inspires me most in my parenting work is becoming a parent, but then really seeing in deep therapy with my adult clients the ways in which their childhoods have affected them long-term and almost reverse engineering kind of, oh, so here's how you became this person you are today. Here are the things that hold you back. And that's why you're probably coming to therapy. But wow, let's get really curious about why you developed those ways in the first place. We're animals. We never work against ourselves, right? So there were reasons. And then if, if kind of in a more patterned way, when I look at oh, like here are things so many of us didn't get. And that's why we had to adapt. But that's why these things hold us back. What if the next generation of parents kind of knew some of these themes early on and then we could fire our kids from the start in ways that still support them as adults rather than things that have to be rewired? I love that. And so much of that is about being intuitive and in connection with not just like what's presently going on, but also like exactly what you said, like what your childhood was like. And so for you personally, are there some examples that you have that you've had to sort of reparent yourself while being a parent that you can share with us? Totally. So yeah, I feel uh, I've worked really, really hard, I think, to reclaim my kind of ability to say no or assert what I want when it inconveniences others, right? It's never hard for us to say what we want, but most of the time we want something that might be an inconvenience to others. And then we're really coming into contact with a really old circuit in our body, which is, oh, what was it like when I was younger to put things out there that were inconvenient? Meaning usually I had a tantrum or had a meltdown or I quote, embarrassed my parent in a public situation. And, um, I think so many of us, and I can speak for myself, but I think especially a lot of women took on the role of good kid, which really means kids who don't have their own wants and needs that might be in conflict with what their parents want of them, which really means not really having access to your own individual inside out desires. And I was definitely a really good kid. And so meaning, quote, good kid, meaning compliant, people pleasing. And I'm a reformed people pleaser from, you know, working on that through therapy, mindfulness, you know, kind of boundary setting. And um, I think I've come a long way because I actually think now setting boundaries is one of my, is one of my strengths. However, my son, my oldest, um, he's a kid. He is just always making a case for himself. Like he always has pushback. He always has an argument. He can be so convincing. And it's something I love about him. And it's also something that still at times, especially if I'm not 
paying attention to my own needs or taking care of myself, it definitely still can be evocative for me. So I might say, can you ever make one decision easy? Can you ever just say, okay, mom, sounds good. And with a smile, you know, when I hear myself saying these things and it's really my struggle. It's my internal struggle. I see him pushing back. And in some ways, what's evoked in me is my own circuit that I had to learn that essentially says in, says in my body, Becky, make things easy for others. Becky, shut that down. Becky, don't speak up from so long ago. And then that's the voice that ends up reacting to my son, um, where when I'm in a better place or a more grounded place, or even when I repair, I might say, look, you're allowed to not like my decision. And it's kind of my job to tolerate your pushback. Uh, You don't have to agree. And I'm still allowed to say no, (laughs) right? That's my kind of reparenting struggle. So I think that's one example of where that might come up. I think that's so key. I, um, you know, like I shared, I have an almost four-year-old who is all kinds of things, obviously, because I I was just about to try to figure out how to like describe him, but he's so much of so many things. And one of the things um, is that he also is very, he's able to sort of like, um, he's really resourceful. Let's say that an Mm -hmm. example of that is like literally at two years old, maybe one and a half, he wanted me to stay home and I had to go pick up some medicine from the pharmacy. And he said, just out of nowhere, let's FaceTime Dada. And I said, why does he want to FaceTime his dad? His dad's driving back from work. So we FaceTime his dad, of course. And he says, Dada, go to CVS to pick up mama's medicine so she can stay home. I was like, okay, that makes sense. I wasn't going to ask him for that. But like, he is resourceful and kind of makes his own sort of, he takes action and always has to kind of like get what he wants, even sometimes in ways that I'm like, I never would have thought of doing that. Like, yeah, sure. that I guess that was an option. And now I get to stay home with you. But he now as an almost four-year-old is, you know, this is happening for all kinds of things like eating, you know, meals, sleep time, clothes, you know, brushing teeth, like everything. And I, I'm really like seeing that it is a lot of it is like sort of exercising his access of control. But What do you do in that situation where, okay, I I totally, it makes sense to me that like I see that and he doesn't have to agree. And we kind of have that conversation of you don't have to like it. And it is also, I totally recognize it's my job to kind of hold that space of like him pushing back. I'm the parent. uh, He's allowed to do that. But then like after how long, like let's, let's use the eating example. I just mm-hmm. feel like my kid doesn't eat very much. And I hear that a lot from a lot of friends with their kids. And he used to eat a lot. but And I hear from the, the pediatricians, just let him. He knows when he's hungry. But it's like, as a mom, I'm like, this is now the like, come on. This is like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, multiple days, not eating very much. Like, I know it's becoming this struggle. And it's probably going down a direction that's not effective with me just nagging him to eat and and not like creating this like really fun environment for food. But I'm just like, Sometimes I'm just over it. I'm like, are you yeah. kidding me? Can you not just, I've just made this meal for you. It looks delicious. It's all your favorite things. It's by the way, it's what you asked for. And why aren't, why are you not eating it? Now what, yeah. you know? So food is, food is always such a hot topic and it brings up so much. It brings up so much for us as parents because it's, I mean, what's our job is to, you know, fill up our kids with good stuff, yes. right? So the food kind of metaphor there is like, it just all becomes so visceral with food. A couple of things come to mind there, right? So one of the things I think a lot about with kids is 
or actually, I guess just with adults too, is kind of control and trust as opposites. Mm. And I think those are just really, that's a really powerful set of opposites to think about. And I think we know that's true from how we have been treated in our life, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a boss in your job who's standing over you, watching you do a report, you feel like your boss doesn't trust you because of how controlling your boss is, right? And we all really, really look to be trusted and make decisions for ourselves. Of course, at times as parents, we have to put boundaries mm-hmm. around that. And I think when we own whatever our job is in a situation, especially with food, we then create an environment where we can relinquish a little control uh, and give our kids trust. So I love thinking about, I don't know if you've ever read, but Ellen Satter's division of responsibility around food. I just think she lays it out so great. So similar to how I think about family jobs in general, where she tells us what our job is. And I think that's always something I come back to with my kids. What is my job here with my son? My job is to make the decision about him being done with screen time, let's Mm -hmm. say, when he pushes back. His job is his feelings. Cool. He's pushing back. I made the decisions. Not a particularly pleasant interaction, but we're both doing our jobs. Mm -hmm. Same thing with food. Like, what's my job? My job is the what, when, and where. What is served? At what time? Where does that happen? And my kid's job is the weather and how much. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the clear division in food, and I think we can, anytime we're in a power struggle with a kid about anything, I think we can come back to asking ourselves that question. Whoa, wait, wait, there must be some confusion of jobs mm-hmm. in a power struggle. Let me, what's my job and what's my kid's job? And it kind of resets so you can show your child trust. And I think saying those things, even very explicitly to our kids, definitely around food, but all over the place, is really grounding. Because again, like imagine going to an office and not knowing what your job was. Right. Like that's just, you can't do a good job if you don't know what your job is. And then you're like, am I being judged by what that person did? Should I have done that? And I think saying to our kids, do you know that mommy has a job and you have a job around mealtime? So interesting, right? My job is deciding what you get, when you get it and where you get it. And one of the things I decided is you're having pasta, broccoli, and chicken, whatever it is for dinner. It's five o'clock. That's when you eat. And we always eat at the table, right? Let's say. And I would say with the what, it's always a good thing to give at least one thing your yeah. kids like. So you don't, right, don't want a ton of anxiety. And then to just say to your kid, and here's the other thing. You have a job. Your job is deciding whether you want to eat any of these foods and how much. And here's a line I actually think is like the ultimate self-confidence building line in parenting, which is adding, because after all, you're the only one in your body So you're the only one who can know what you want. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think me and you can see the long-term, like how many of us as teenagers and 20-year-olds could have used to hear self-talk that said, I'm the only one in my body and I'm the only one who could know what I want in food situations and I think a million applications outside food situations. Absolutely. And I think like on the lucky side with, with having a kid that sort of has been doing this for a long time and sort of like very connected and he's very connected with his body and his feelings and and he's able to express them verbally. And so I think every time I've been in that situation with him and sort of given him that empowerment or given him a sense of his own sort of sense of responsibility, like it does work out better. Mm -hmm. But it's like, you know, it's like there are obviously these breaking points that we have to, it's a perfect example. It's like when you were like, okay, I I will do that and I'll get to that place and I'll be like, can you ever just make any decision easy? But then when you're in a better place and like yesterday, another example, 
you know, we're this whole trust thing. It's so interesting you bring it up because we're really working on that. Like I, I want my son to believe that I trust him. And so he, you know, has been going to the bathroom himself for a really long time now. And sometimes, you know, in the beginning, I'll make sure I'll go in and be like, are you okay? And he'll ask me politely for privacy. And I'll say, I trust you. I know you know what you're doing. So I'll just wait out here if you need me. And yesterday, perfect example. He was like, uh, you know, he was doing something and then he said, I'm going to go pee and I want to use your bathroom. So I said, okay. So he goes in and I said, are you just using the bathroom? And he says, yes. And I said, all right, I trust you. And he comes out and everything seems fine. And all of a sudden I'm with his little brother as well. And we're on my bed and I see like kind of little shedding pieces of hair everywhere on my bed. And I was like, this cannot be my little one. This can't be Dio because he does not have hair. Like, you know, my, my son has like, my older son has like locks, really dark, dark black hair. And I'm like, what is going on? And I look at him and I'm sort of, I touch his head and more hair falls out. And of course, at this point I'm freaking out. I think I need to call the doctor. Why is his hair falling? Like, do we need a blood test? And I look at him and I'm like, Jag, why is your hair falling? And he's like, I don't know. And I still don't think anything of it. Like he's just peed. I told him I trusted him and never thought anything of it. I, more is coming out now, locks. And I'm like, this looks like cut. And I was like, Jag, did you cut your hair? And he was like, no. And I was like, are you telling me the truth? And I was like, I'm going to have to call the doctor right now because I think your hair is falling. And he's like, no, 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 no. Yes, I did. I found your eyebrow scissors in the bathroom and there's even more hair all over the bathroom floor. And I was like, I go in the bathroom floor and there's hair. I mean, he literally took chunks of hair, of course, off the front. Uh, It looks insane, but that's okay. And I was like, I don't even know what to do. Part of me is like, he said, my hair is too long. And part of me was like proud of him that he took initiative because he said his hair was too long and it was in his face. But another part of me, yeah. But another part of me is like, you lied to me and we're working. And like, I told you, I trusted you. I gave you freedom. And another thing is like, scissors are dangerous. I mean, granted, they were like blunt, you know, eyebrow scissors, but still. And where did he even, he knew where I cut them and he knows they're called eyebrow scissors. So all of that to me was just like, and I didn't even see the extent of how much he cut until I washed his hair. But like, I didn't even know where to go from there. I was just like, and I don't, and I said something, which who knows if it was right or wrong, but I was just like, Jag, I, I understand that you want a haircut and you think your hair is too long. And I think it's really amazing that you thought you could just do that yourself. But there's some things you just can't do yourself because it's dangerous. And using scissors to your hair or anyone's hair is one of those. And And I said, I was disappointed in him because I told him I trusted him and he lied to me. And I don't even know that it felt wrong even inside to, to say that, but it was the truth. And I don't know. I didn't know how to create that. Like, I didn't know at that moment, after all the research that I do, after everything, everything I read, all the research I've done after graduate school, after everything, I really was lost. I didn't know. I was very disappointed and I really didn't know where to go from there, to be honest. Like I didn't know whether to laugh. I didn't know whether to yell and I didn't know whether to praise him. And I didn't know whether to just punish him. I didn't punish him, but I didn't know where to go. And I still don't in order for him to learn not to do that again. So I don't know. What would you have done? Uh, what would I have done or what would I tell no, someone to do? Exactly. Very different things. Very different things, which I totally get. But okay, so let's start with what would you tell me to do? Great. So so a couple of things come to mind. So one of the things I think about all the time when I'm working with parents is what's more important than one strategy or any strategy or any script or any intervention is our framework. 
right? How we frame a situation dictates what type of strategies become available Mm -hmm. to us, right? So looking at your framework or even learning to question, how am I thinking about this? What interpretation do I have? Or I always like to ask myself with my kids, the way I'm thinking about what just happened with my kid, is the feeling I'm having antagonistic toward my child? I'm finding myself distance, like, ooh, why did that happen? Or am I framing it in a way where I actually feel close to my child and want to be on the same team? Mm. And to me, actually more important than any strategy or script is asking ourselves that question because that's when we come up with our own strategies and scripts. And we want to be in a framework where we understand our child or we could understand our child, right? Um, We want to be in a framework where we see a situation as me and my child against a problem rather than me against my child who is the problem. Mm. I think actually more than anything else, that is a really powerful parenting strategy. And and by the way, I should say marriage strategy Mm. and colleague strategy. Do I see something as me and this person against a problem? We're looking at it together or me against this person. And we all know any human of any age knows whether someone is looking at them as the problem or as a teammate against the problem. And that makes all the difference. And like when you're saying that, it's so interesting. I really put myself like I was him for a second in the bathroom. And obviously I feel I know him so well. Like I'm sure there was like an element of like fun too for him where he was like, and also, yes, that independence thing where he also has been kind of saying, and I haven't taken it too seriously that he like feels like his hair's in his eyes and how fun and, and sort of independent and a sense of self-mastery he must have felt to just be like, well, why don't I just take matters into my own hands? And what would happen if I just snip, snip, snipped here? And like looking at that in that way, I do feel like also it's his hair. Um, It's not my hair, but like the part that I just come back to is like judging myself on like, but there were scissors somehow. I never even knew that he knew where they were, but like accessible to him. And is that dangerous? And they were not sharp. So again, they were blunt, but like still like, and what do I, what am I not doing for him to be able to have that experiment or want or need or desire or sort of like that thrill or whatever it is in front of me. Like, obviously I've made it a situation where he knew that that wasn't going to be something that I was going to be happy with. And that's what kind of breaks my heart a little bit. So, you know, I think there's so many uh, kind of like multiplicities to hold here, which is this brings up feelings in you. Like, am I a bad parent? Did I, like, what did I do to cause this? Which I think... Whenever we go into that mode, we often have to shut down our kids' behavior or feelings. Usually, it's actually just in the service of kind of like shoring up our defenses again, right? Because we want to get back to, wait, I'm a good parent. Like, I'm okay. And, you know, I I think kind of two things are true, which is that we want to trust our kids and we do trust our kids. And our kids, because they're human beings who are developing and learning about the world, are going to, in a healthy way, do things that... From one perspective, we could say betray our trust. But I think that goes back to the framework. I would say sometimes their need for experimentation Mm -hmm. could be interpreted as, oh, I can't trust you. Mm -hmm. But it could also be interpreted as, wow, you had a need to experiment with that. Now that I know that we can kind of work in that way, I can, we can think about other ways to play around with that. But I can trust you and you're going to inevitably do things because you're an independent human being that goes outside the bounds of that trust. Yes. 
And I think that's, that's true, right? Our kids aren't, in some ways, like our job is to hold these boundaries and our kids' jobs are to test and probably at certain points betray those boundaries. And then we do it all again. That just mm-hmm. reminds me of, what do you think about that like little experiment that was going around in the beginning of the pandemic? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where, where parents would leave like ice cream or dessert in front of their kids and videotape them and be like, hey, just wait until I come back. I'm just going to the bathroom really quick. And when I get back, you can eat this ice cream or whatever, like the delayed gratification. Is that, I mean, I'm sure that depends on what age the kid is, but is that actually like setting up? Like, what does that even mean? Is that like an appropriate experiment? It was just fun and silly. Or is that actually like, does it have like any negative consequences? And are we expecting something? I mean, I guess it reminds me of the kind of this the study that's quoted all the time, the like marshmallow yeah, test. The marshmallow that's test. Right. That's what it was. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. You, uh, if you don't eat this marshmallow, when I get yeah. back, you can I have two. two. And yeah. that is often kind of lauded as a sign of right delay of yeah. gratification. But, you know, I, I think that that, that test is, uh, is multifaceted in that, you know, you're not really taking into account kids' experiences around food insecurity or in general have promises be kept to me over my life. Yes. So to delay eating the marshmallow, you've had to, by that point, have had enough life experience that says adults tend to keep their word. Right. And if you don't have that life experience, you better eat that marshmallow because for all you know, someone's coming back and taking that one and not even giving you another. Exactly. So I think that's, a, I think that's complicated yes. and probably same with the, the ice cream too. Yes. But, uh, you know, I think, I think again, in this two things are true way, we want to set our kid up in environments where they in general can make good decisions, right? I, I hear this a lot from parents. My kid just takes the iPad whenever, you know, and I they know they can't have the iPad until whatever time. And somehow my child's on it for an hour before. My not so psychological intervention is, I don't know why your child has access to the iPad. Exactly. Like, put the iPad away, right? But in the case of those scissors, yeah. I, what, what comes to mind for me is we're not putting our kids in a bubble. Right. Like we can't, so better than, oh, should I never have had those out? Like if I was with you in your house, what I think your son is saying he could almost use work on, not because there's any failing, just because he's a developing child and, you know, us as developing adults are still working on things, is what is it like to see something that sparks interest, mm-hmm. even though probably another voice in you knows that is not the best decision. And the best way to work in that circuit is nothing to do with punishment or lectures. Is actually just playing around with it. So I could see saying, oh, I think you were in the bathroom. When did you have the idea? Mm-hmm. Just start, when did you, but did you have it in the bathroom? I'm just curious, did you, is that why you went into the bathroom? Did you think about it earlier? Oh, what was it like when you thought about doing it? You probably thought about doing it, thought about doing it. And my guess is a part of you was like, oh, do it. That's so fun. That's going to be amazing. And another part of you was like, oh, I don't know. Oh, how did you figure that out? You're kind of laying out the process that might one day lead to someone's ability to inhibit an urge. Yes. Probably not about cutting his hair, but about other yes. things that we know our kids have urges to do. Totally. That the answer is never not to have the urge. The answer is we're going to have an urge. How do we manage do the urge? Exactly. And negotiate and within we- ourselves. Is this worth it? Is it's not? Like, I, you're so right. I would love... That's all I want actually is to is to give him that platform to tell me. I want to, I want to peek into his brain and be like, what was that experience like? And ultimately how did you decide to actually do it? And did it feel good? And you have that opportunity now. We do all these things. In some ways, right, I think we have these moments where we can say, wow, I'm kind of glad this happened with my kid. Now I kind of have an insight into things they're working on and I have have data. It's so interesting. We put so much pressure on ourselves as parents that like, I I was almost going to say right now, which sounded 
when I said it in my head, it sounded like very uh, judgmental towards myself. But I was like, up until this point, like I've had this relationship with him when I've been one thing I've been really proud of is that like, I feel like we're very open and transparent with each other. Like he literally tells me everything, even things that I know he knows I'm going to be upset about, but he tells me. And yesterday Mm -hmm. was sort of this first like incident where like, not only did he not tell me, but he literally came back from the bathroom and like, didn't say anything at all. Like I actually just saw like it, I had to discover it. And he even like, obviously didn't tell the full truth until a little bit later. And so that was like such a big shocking thing for me. And of course, just like you said, I went straight to like, what did, what have I done to sort of betray that transparent open line of communication for him that he feels he can no longer just be open with me when like part of it, I think is just what I'm hearing. And that what is resonating with me so much is like normalizing that experience, including myself while I tell him about urges and like spelling it out. And I think modeling exactly like when I have this urge, whether it's with the blocks or whatever, and sort of like acting it out with him so that he feels we've had this open conversation and he's more likely next time to tell me, maybe even explain the process of an urge that he has. And we can talk about it. I think that's exactly right. And in another element, and I'm going to actually link this back to what we started with talking about food even, right? Is I think so many of us, and I don't know exactly your, your upbringing, but we want to have such a more open relationship with our kids than we had that, you know, there was a whole list of things that was like, oh, I can never tell my parents that or that. And we kind of know our kids are good. They're working on things. We work on things by being open. And I think that's an amazing, you know, generational shift that a lot of people are making. And yet there's something to be said, and I'll qualify this for secrets. Yes. That I don't want my kids to tell me everything. Right. I'm not inside them, right? They're boundaries. Right. And getting to be for something, the idea that you know something that nobody else knows yeah. is kind of a source of your identity, right? Now, do we want your son to own that piece of an identity by keeping secrets that happen to not be great secrets? No, right? But it kind of speaks to those same themes of what am I in control of? Do I control what I eat, right? Where do I get that right. this is me? And I know I'm my own person. And I would even play around with that later on. Also, oh, what is it? What's it like to have a secret? Like, I wonder what types of secrets there are. Like I could keep things secret from daddy that, ooh, he might, he might really want to know. I could keep other things secret that is just something that's kind of silly in my own. Like, hmm, if there was anything dangerous, that's never something we'd keep secret. If there was anything that made me feel uncomfortable, no, 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 no. But sometimes it's okay to have something you do and you're in control of, right? So that's another part that I think on some level he's saying, I want to, I, I want to be my own person. Right. And we don't want him to do that by cutting his hair, but I could see even incorporating it into food when you serve him food and he says, I don't want chicken tonight. You you can even double down on that larger process by saying, wow, you're four, you're big and you know, you don't want chicken. Wow. You're your own person. I see that. I gave you chicken. I thought you might want chicken. And you're saying, no, you really know yourself. In some ways, a kid is less likely to keep a secret about cutting their hair when they feel like they have other places where their identity is so clearly seen. Yes. And respected. And respected. There's also just so much pressure 
Like yeah. it's so much pressure to be a parent. And I think at, you know, at the best we can just be intentional and know sort of what we're doing, hopefully, or at least look at it. But, you know, at the worst, it can just be this, like, we're never doing anything right. And we're not going to be perfect. And like, I don't want to do this. And I hear myself saying it and, you know, that whole thing. So I think there's just like also an aspect of how much value there is, even just modeling our parenting styles in front of our kids by being empathic towards ourselves and telling them that like, we're just doing the best job we can. And we're probably not, we're not perfect. And we're not going to do it like completely right, but we're just trying really hard to do the best we can. Uh, I mean, uh, so many yeses to to what you're saying. And you know, I think we we never kind of learn as much about our own upbringings as we do when we're parents because we just watch all of yes. our stuff come alive. We're like, oh, I guess that's still, I guess that's still an issue yeah. I struggle with. <laughs> there it is, right? And we can look at that, I think, in a judgmental way of like, oh, I'm so messed up. Or yeah. we can look at that, I think, in a really empowering way, which is kind of similar to what we're saying with our kids when they struggle. If we look at that from a, they're kind of telling me something they need more skills around or they need me to connect to. Well, I guess when I have one of these moments that I later look at as, oh, Becky, that's not your, not your best parenting moment. I can do that for myself too. And that is the ultimate form of compassion is compassion when you're struggling, yes. right? And I'm so glad that you bring this up because it's a perfect segue to talk a little bit about what my favorite topic on this whole planet is, which is resiliency and everything that we're just talking about right now, which is growing from struggle and, and sort of being curious. That's a big part of what I talk about in my work. It's like literally just being curious about your struggle is a huge part of resiliency and growing from it. So I'm just so interested to talk to a like-minded person that also has a lot to say about this topic. So I'm just going to not talk about any of mine and be really open and ask you about your strategies and and maybe uh, ask you, what is your definition of resiliency in children? And how do we, how do we help our children with resiliency? And I'm sure a lot of pretty much everything we've been talking about are all ways that are going to help our children be more resilient and us be more resilient as parents in which modeling in turn helps them. But how do you define resiliency for kids? Yeah. So I don't know if I should hold myself to this definition because I don't, I think I would want to really think about that. But the first thing that comes to mind is kind of like a kid's learning to tolerate distressing experiences. You know, our, our ability almost to struggle well. Now that's very different, obviously, from being masochistic, mm-hmm. right? We all need to take breaks. We all need to get help. But when I think about resilience, I think about being able to tolerate frustration, being able to stay in a moment that's challenging, being able to not know. And those are all internally just really distressing, uncomfortable experiences. And I think one of the things that happen in childhood is kids are learning through their environment as, of course, impacted by their temperament and so many other factors as well. Is this an emotion that I can learn to manage and tolerate? And most of where kids learn that in their immediate environment is by watching, is this an emotion my parent tolerates in me? How wide is my parent's bandwidth for my frustration? What is my parent's reaction when I uh, struggle to do a puzzle and say, oh, I can't do it. Does my parent tolerate that? 
Can they tolerate it? What happens when I'm struggling to learn my letters and letter sounds? What's what's the feeling of everyone around me? And that really impacts for me as a kid what I wire in my body next to struggle. Mm. And I think the thing about, res- uh, so many things about resilience, but one of the things I think that we make the mistake about is we think about resilience as the ending. Like, oh, my kid learned how to do math after working on it as if like that's the the product. Right. Right. Um, and I was actually, I think it was this morning, I saw some like old Jay-Z clip who was talking, he was talking about like Michael Jordan that everyone wants to emulate the product. But what you don't see is the, Process. I don't know. He was talking about Kobe. That's what that, you know, you see him score this many points. You didn't see him practice over and over and over. And for kids who are able to, by the time they're even five, let's say, start to start to read or learn letters, those were kids who had to learn how to struggle, putting on their shoes, holding a pencil, opening Play-Doh. And I think about for my kids that one of the things I really hope as they get older is that they they can kind of struggle well, that when something's hard, yes. their self-talk is, oh, I can get through this. This feeling is part of learning. Yes. It's not antithetical to learning. I'm in the right place because I'm feeling this. And I have internalized my parents' deep breaths. I have internalized them saying, take a break and then we'll get back to it. I've internalized them saying, yes, puzzles are hard. And maybe I'll sing a song next to you when you're doing a puzzle to help you regulate while learning the skill. But I'm not in a rush to just put that puzzle together for you, which makes you feel like that frustration is impossible to tolerate. Ah, this is so good. And it's so in line. Um, I knew it would be with the stuff that, that I talk about. But what I think is so important, the distinction you're making here is that not only... I just think this is so amazing that the way you said this, but not only are we looking at our parents and seeing how they model resiliency in general, but the way that we as children get and build up our resiliency is watching them, watching them and modeling them in how they interpret and react to our struggle in that moment. That That's exactly right. It's, you know, the the moment happens. And then what I think our kids' circuitry is really built on is this kind of these patterns, never one time, but patterns of experience. Kids don't learn regulation or resilience through school. Right. They don't learn it in a book. They absorb it through experience in their body. And what you're saying about your son, I think about this a lot. It was actually one of my more popular IGTVs where I said, The kids who are without a doubt at the greatest risk for long-term low self-esteem, I think are the kids who have a ton of early success Mm -hmm. because they pull for external validation, which gets in their way of looking in, defining themselves inside out, valuing process over product. Because if you can feel good about yourself based on product, it's pretty easy to do in your early years. And then you get to a certain age and we all know you get to a certain age and there's just, there's just nuance in the world. You're not great at everything anymore. And kind of, you've missed out on a bunch of years. Like, oh, well, how do I, how do I, how do I feel good about myself? How can I be resilient through not being the kid who knows the most about, right you know, whatever topic in college? <laughs> right. Exactly. Go easy on yourselves, parents out there, because it's not necessarily what just anyone would think of doing naturally. It's a, it's a muscle that we have to build up and be really intentional about but I think that's so key. And so I would encourage everyone listening, myself included, the next time, which hopefully, by the way, is every day because little small struggles 
happen every single day to all of us. And that's part of being a human. The next time our kid is going through something that's a struggle or even ourselves, really start thinking about intentionally how we are managing that distress. Are we holding it for them? Are we holding a place for them, a safe space for them? Are we helping them, giving them tools to manage through it? Or are we trying to just push it under the rug and put a lid on it and sort of move on because it's too distressing ourselves to see? And so I think that is just, to me, that is sort of one of the most important things to learn if you do want to increase resiliency in ourselves and our children. Well, you know what? Let me ask you this, because I know that something that you're really great at that I think is an excellent form of sort of illustrating this for ourselves is sort of these mini scripts that you do. Um, Yeah. If I give you an example, I'd love to hear. So, okay. A great example is that, again, with my son, you know, he hasn't played with anyone over this past year, like so many of you guys out there because of the pandemic. And we go to this, uh, not really a park, but this grassy area in our neighborhood. And it's, you know, he sees these two little girls and they're playing with each other. They're clearly either really good friends or family. One's a little bit older than him and one's younger than him. And they're playing tag and they're running around in the open. And he goes and he starts to run with them and they just completely stop. And the older girl says, no, I'm only playing with blah, blah, blah. And said the little girl's name. Mm -hmm. And my son kind of stopped and and looked at me and then looked at them and it didn't really phase him. He was like, okay, I'll try again. So then he goes again and starts running with them. And she just stops again and says the same thing um, a little bit more. Uh, increasingly more unfriendly and I'm watching him and this is never something I've never seen this happen with him. So I'm really interested to see what's going to happen. But I'm also like, obviously uh, also getting increasingly protective and upset. Like the, the tiger mom is coming out in me and he then just says, well, why can't I play with you guys? I'm not going to touch you. I know there's a germ. (laughs) I just want to run with you guys. And literally just says that. And she goes, no, we're not playing with you. And he just looks at me and he starts bawling. And I've never seen that. And he's just like, I don't understand why they don't want to play with me. I didn't want to touch them. I just wanted to play tag. And he was just like, he cried almost our whole walk home. And I knew that it was really important for me in that moment to tell him that it makes a lot of sense why he's crying and to allow him to cry and to say, listen, I would cry too if I were you. And I've been in situations where people didn't want to play with me and it really hurt my feelings. And, you know, I also wanted to give him some ideas of, you know, sometimes people want to play and sometimes they don't. But it was a really eye opening thing for me to see since he's about to start school. But let's use that example. What could be a script? Yeah. So, right. What's kind of the feeling there, right? If resilience is our ability to kind of tolerate distressing experiences and kind of like resilience in general, I think is like our ability to feel like, it's okay to feel the widest range of emotions, including feeling left out, yes. including feeling rejected, right? So I think what you did is even just saying to your kid, I'm here, they're all such minimal things. Our body needs really, really simple language because it's so much going on. I'm here. Oh, I'm so glad I'm here with you. I'm so glad you're telling me about this. I'm so glad we're talking about this. Meanwhile, someone might be like, Becky, we're not talking about this. My kid's just crying. It's okay. It's just that what you're really saying is, this feeling that's being encoded in your body is going to remember a parent around yes. it. And that's going to make a difference going forward. I just imagine like if I had a horrible day 
And my husband is like, Becky, let me just understand everything that happened. So you spilled your coffee. Mm-hmm. Then your boss yelled at you. Mm-hmm. And then you found out your friends had dinner and didn't invite you. And then your favorite shirt, you found out shrank. Mm-hmm. And now you're home. There's just something so amazing yeah. about someone repeating. And I Because they heard exactly you. Right. They saw you. They actually listened. Exactly. I love that. And, you know, actually what ended up happening is we had a very similar experience. I held him almost the whole way home. We talked about it. Yeah. We really normalized what he was feeling because it was the first time I think he's ever felt that. And what was so interesting is he was able... So on our walk home, we ran into a couple dogs. And it was really interesting. One dog that we ran into, the the owner kind of pulled back the leash and said, no, 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 no. This dog's not very friendly. And he said, okay. And then we kept walking. And right before we got home, there was another dog that came running up to him and started sniffing his feet. And the owner said, oh, don't worry. You can say hi. This, our dog's really friendly. And then he said, mama, it's kind of like sometimes people at the park, they're going to be friendly. And sometimes people aren't going to be friendly. And both yeah. ways, they're okay. And I was like, yes. That's amazing that he could say that. So that felt like, but I think it's so important what you're saying. There's still a lot of, there's still a lot of texture to it that, there's an opportunity for us to sort of preemptively talk about. And I love the idea. We do this so much in therapy, you know, um, of role playing and sort of preparing the body for, and the mind and the body for like, for future experiences. And so pre going into school, honestly, what you just said and doing that with my son is going to help me too. (laughs) You know, I think think that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. It reminds us we're not scared of that happening. And I think you can't change the feeling what we can change for our kids is how much they feel like that feeling is part of normal human experience. The last thing I kind of want to talk about is this idea again about resiliency, but it's something I've been hearing a lot over this past year that parents kind of just saying, I'm not that worried or even like schools um, with this past year, kids are just resilient. So this like idea that kids are ready, are already resilient And there isn't really anything we have to do. And we're not worried about them when something traumatic happens, sort of like a pandemic, and they must change everything about their whole life. And we kind of can like disregard that because they'll get over it because they're so resilient and don't worry about it. Like, I understand the intention of where that's coming from. And I think that our kids absolutely have a lot of skills that we can learn from in many ways. But I actually think resiliency is something that we build and it's a muscle and that we can't just look at our kids and say they are already resilient and anything that they're going through is not that big of a deal. They won't remember. That's another one that really just kind of bothers me, especially about this past year. You know, I've, I don't know how many times I've had that said to me, you know, when I've kind of expressed, well, wow, I wonder, you know, I'm really curious as to like how this is all going to play out and I'm trying my hardest to try to figure out some things that I can do with my kids or, you know, like he hasn't played with other kids and all these things. And I'm just like having a conversation about it and whether it's schools or other parents or even parenting experts that I follow on social, like people just saying articles written in, in, you know, really, really high level newspapers or magazines that are just like, not to worry, our youngest kids are already so resilient, no big deal. I think there's, that's very loaded. And so I think we actually have to think everything is a big deal and be intentional about it. And we need to actively work to promote resiliency in ourselves and our kids. And and a lot of times it's these type of scenarios that if we don't talk about them, 
and we don't process them with our kids or give them a platform to feel space and feel some safety and space to talk about. These are the things that I think what you're talking about later in life kind of become the adult anxiety. And, and, you know, our kids are very sensitive beings and they're very connected um, to their gut and their intuitions. And if you're not talking about this past year with them, I think there's a huge missing opportunity actually for resiliency by just assuming that they are already resilient. We all have a tremendous capacity to be resilient, but I don't think any anyone, I don't know, but I don't think anyone really believes you build resilience by quote, just moving on. Right. That what can look on the surface, like moving on can lead to a lot of things building, brewing and being stored in a state of aloneness and confusion in the body. So helping our kids understand their experience prevents kids from doing the two things they have to do when changes are unexplained in their environment, self-doubt and self-blame. And those are really antithetical to the development of resilience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, yes, it sounds like we're on the same page, which is this narrative of kids are resilient. I don't know if it's just something we, we say to ourselves to make us feel better. And it's not that they're not resilient. They just have tremendous capacity to be resilient. And, and we have to kind of scaffold that skill. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So my last question for you is what's looking up for you? What is on the horizon? What are you most excited about uh, personally and also mm-hmm. professionally? A lot of things, you know, this, you're catching me at a time when I'm in the midst of so um, much professional change. So that still all feels so new. And uh, I just started my own podcast. I have a new newsletter. I have a new Instagram handle and website, all kind of under this larger umbrella, I guess I will call called Good Inside, which I think a lot about 10 core principles to all of my kind of parenting work and beliefs. And the first one really is that we are inherently good inside. And that to me is what makes me curious. I think it's what can allow all of us to be curious about ourselves and kids, which is, okay, so if I take the premise that we're all good inside, why do we all do such, not such great things? And that gap is where I think we can be really curious and and learn and grow. So I'm looking forward to doing more podcasts. I'm looking forward to doing these newsletters. I have more workshops on the horizon. I'm writing a book. uh, So that's in the works. And I am brainstorming all types of ways to bring this amazing parenting and reparenting community uh, together so we can all learn from and support each other. Well, I'm so excited. I am so excited we finally made this happen. It's been been in the works for... I don't know, like a year, over a year. And I'm so glad we finally got to talk. And it was just so lovely to speak to someone so like-minded and also get so much good personal advice uh, for my own parenting, which I know everybody can relate to. The last thing that we do here on the Looking Up podcast is... Uh, because we're not together, I pick a card for you from my little baby, which is the Things Are Looking Up Optimism deck of cards and be on the lookout for the new kids version soon. But I I picked this card for you randomly while you were just talking. And it's just so funny because the cards that I that I randomly have been pulling just it seems to make sense for the episode. So I'm excited because I just pulled this card and I'm like, huh, this uh, you're going to get it. Okay. So here's your card. Think about a time you felt rejected or didn't quite get what you had hoped for. Now humor yourself. See if you can come up with three ways you grew from it. That is your homework for today. You don't have to answer it now. 
But hopefully you take this prompt with you into your day and you can come up with those three ways that you grew from it. And obviously this card is very in line with building resiliency. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and I'm going to actually do this card today with my son. I already do all these cards with him, but this is a good card. I feel like that uh, is very in line with what we were talking about. Thank you for coming on. And I'm so excited to hear your podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info and how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.co. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Our theme music is Me and Sade by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.